Hey, your old pal Hanky here. Friendly piece of warning. You will hear some bad words, so if they upset you, um, all I can tell you is you've been warned. Thanks. Hey, it's your pal Hanky here. Um, back safe and dry from a hectic and crazy Basel week. Um, this was kind of a wacky fair. I would love to tell you that um, everything that the fair promoters promised Hap would happen happened that all the crowds came back that the rearrangement and uh, improvisation and uh, improvements helped uh, to create a better fare and unfortunately that just wouldn't be so um, it while it wasn't quite a shit show it definitely um, kind of under delivered and over promised on what came across to be fair, I can't really put all of that on the fair organizers, and especially as a lot of them are new this year. And a lot of what went wrong, I think, probably was, resi was re bleh, residual, uh, or let's even put it more plainly, the residue um, of things that really hadn't been put forward in a good way before. So stay tuned, and we're going to be back. Talk to you soon. Okay, so we're back. Um, thanks for tuning in. It's been, um, as I said, a bit of a hectic time. We were able to get a few live pods from uh, the Hyperion Hotel uh, while we were operating the Hype, which was our um, pop-up event that featured 12 different brands. And unfortunately, just, you know, the week got away from me, so I do apologize. We, and by we, I mean me, <laughs> will hopefully be having some more guests in the near future. Uh, but I thought really what was foremost on my mind and in fact a lot of other people who attended the fair was ultimately the outcome of the fair and you know what kind of feeling did it leave everybody with did it you know did it live up to its own hype um and i, I think it was a big question mark going in i think some of us who are a little more seasoned and probably a little more skeptical and i'm definitely in that camp were we set the bar pretty low for what we expected uh that's not, again, to be um, unkind to the people who have gone into managing the fair. It's, it's a big job. It is very hard to turn an ocean liner on a dime. I think all things being equal, given what they had to work with, um, I think they, they produced a reasonable fair. There were, however, quite a few things that honestly just got asked up that really it, it was down to execution or really the lack thereof. And this kind of showed through on a lot of different levels. Now, running in parallel to this was, if I'm very honest, a sort of um, strange detachment, strange sense of detachment that some of the brands seemed to have about what they needed to do to get ready for Basel World on their own. Um, for many of us, we were getting press invitations the week before the fair started, you know, maybe 10 days before. And these were uh, some pretty hideously crafted and brutally screwed up <laughs> email blasts because they, while they were pushing to have things in an automated format, they in, in the end basically succeeded in screwing up a lot of press appointments and probably caused more harm than they did good. Again, in fairness to the people who made these decisions or the people trying to put this together, I don't know if these were, if every PR firm was just bringing in a lot of new staffers. I don't know if it was just sort of 
a bad bunch of gremlins that um, got into everybody's constant contact folders and managed to screw everything up. But essentially, a lot of us received some very curious email invitations. And the email invitations, uh, in the subject line, it would say test. And then you scroll down and it would say dear, uh, blank space, followed by another blank space. I can only assume that's where the first and last name were meant to go. Uh, and once I read something like that, I have to be honest with you, I'm kind of one step away from thinking that it's a spam mail from a former Nigerian most excellent prime foreign minister who wants to share his wealth with me. Uh, it, it really didn't set a good precedent. It, it set things off on the wrong tone. Curious to relate, um, those emails would be followed up with more emails from exactly the same company, uh, the same PR firm with exactly the same message, only now they would have my name. A few of them came then with not my name, but somebody else's name. And then several um, several invitations that I got were referencing how much um, the magazine that I wrote with, and I won't insert the name of it here, would probably enjoy covering their brand. Uh, again, curious to relate, I don't write for that publication. So it, it was very much a, a case of, I think, panicky meltdown for a lot of these firms. They really just kind of drop the ball. I think is a polite way to say it. Shit the bed, I think is probably a more accurate way to put it. Now, if you feel like I'm being uncharitable and unkind here, I'll, I'll give you a for instance. I was in one of the halls, doesn't matter which one, and I was speaking with a brand owner, doesn't matter who it was, and I was apologizing for the fact that I had been unable to successfully book an appointment with him. To which he said, I don't understand what happened. And I said, well, let me show you the email, which I did. And he's like, ah, and in the email, it's that same no name uh, salutation. And I then showed him the spot where it said, click here to book your appointment, which I had done several times before leaving, um, leaving to go to Switzerland and had assumed that my appointment was booked only to then get emails from the brand itself later saying, no, we have no record of this appointment. Now, about the time that I'm getting into my stride telling this story, the first penny drops. And by the penny, I mean the first other journalist who had an appointment book for that time. And he says, very concerned, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, it was 3.05, but I have a three o'clock appointment. To which the brand owner said, are you sure? And he said, no, absolutely, see? And the brand owner says, well, but I didn't get that update from the PR firm that was handling that. So I'm really sorry. And the guy says, okay, that's fine. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to try and come back another time then. And we start talking again and about another three minutes pass and two new journalists come in with exactly the same situation that they had booked uh, and that that was their time. Uh, he then asked, oh, are you two from the same outlet? And they said, no, no, we, we don't know each other. We just met waiting out front to try and get in to see you. Um, and then the fourth penny dropped when yet another person came in about five minutes after these guys, at which point it, it was sort of a farcical situation and really it I just said so this is actually what I'm talking about um, so obviously he was very upset because he'd spent a lot of money on this PR firm he had now blown um, five potential appointments that he now can't recover and truthfully it, it gave the other people a very bad opinion of the situation at a minimum and probably not a great opinion of his organizational skills are those of the company that he retained. Now, here's the thing. I mean, Basel World is 
while it was in in some ways it's in a state of flux this year because we weren't sure how the fair was going to go but in fairness we all knew what day it was going to start we all knew it was going to be in you know essentially um the second to last week of march overlapping into the last week of march we knew what companies were going to be there because they committed we knew who our clients were and if you're the PR company, I would like to think that you knew that it was your responsibility to send out press invitations maybe a little bit earlier than 10 days out. More importantly, it would be much more your responsibility for the people who actually did respond that you, instead of depending on automati- automation and very clearly a buggy algorithm and some young people who I can only assume have never actually had been through the crucible that is Basel week before to get this stuff right. Because when you're looking at your appointment book and you notice that you've got nothing there, that might be the time where if you're the manager or the owner, you want to step in and make sure this is being taken care of. Now, this is a microcosm. This went on pretty much for, I, I won't want to say every brand, but for a lot of brands. And it was, it was a mess and it was definitely the talk of the press room. So let's look at that for a moment and now let's think about some realities i guess and some of the realities are this that it's fair to say that it could have been done better that's easy Uh, but i think what's more curious is the attitude that some of the firms had of like hey we're doing our best um you know so quit picking on us which i felt was a little uh, a little, I mean, a just silly and kind of schoolyard type behavior because, frankly, they they get paid a lot of money, and just you know, without naming names or pointing fingers, but you know, a typical PR firm who's going to land an account like that, they're going to be billing a minimum of about five thousand to seventy five hundred francs, euros, or dollars uh, per client that they're dealing with on a monthly basis, and you can rest assured that that amount is going to go up during Basel World. So I think at a bare minimum, they they have the responsibility to try and fix it if they know it's broken and not to be defensive about it. Um, so that's that's a big, a big gray cloud. I think that for a lot of the brands and certainly a lot of the people who paid their own way to come out and cover the fair, um, yeah, that's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth, and it definitely could have been handled better. But really, the goofiness of the fair kind of transcended that. Let's just say that that was a little piece of it. So. As, as I mentioned in a previous blog, uh, previous podcast, and certainly on the blog, that a group of brands that approached me had asked, could we try to put together something in the Hyperion Hotel? We agreed that we would. We'd keep it very low key. It would just be the brands. They would have some table space. They could show watches, have conversations. No velvet rope, no, um, no glittering giveaway gifts, just straightforward and simple. If you want to meet me and hear about my watches, here I am. Now, Truthfully, we had no idea how it was going to go, and I'm just going to be brutally honest. It was off the chain pretty much every day. We had people spilling over into other areas. We had probably more more journalists and certainly more retailers than we were able to take care of and deal with. And truthfully, I think every brand um, came away a little bit pleasantly surprised with how well it went, and probably no one more surprised than I was. But you know, grateful for it. Now, I think for us, it was it was certainly kind of a homespun effort that we had to depend on the brands to hold up their end, which in essence was, you know, promote through their own channels that this was going to be going on and this is where to find them. We had to count on ourselves because we couldn't afford um, an external 
uh, company to come in and organize this. So we had to do it on our own. And a huge thank you to the staff at the Hyperion Hotel because they were amazing, uh, particularly the team who worked downstairs in the in the bar area. They went well above and beyond. Um, and I would recommend their services pretty much to anybody. They were amazing. But I think what made it come off was that we were all in it together. We all took it seriously. We didn't just assume that things were going to happen. If um, if one of the brands needed help, it was interesting to see that even people from not competing, but let's just say other brands sharing the space would go out of their way to engage with a customer if, you know, if that person was away for a moment to get their card, to call the other brand owner to say, hey, you know, can you break away from what you're doing because I've got one of your clients here. And that that was really remarkable. And that is something that really you just don't tend to see in the big halls. Um, and it's that was kind of an, an interesting thing. Now, that's a little bit of subtext because really what um, what one of the big one of the big gaffes, one of the big um, I mean, it, it I mean, I'm sorry, it was a bit of a shit show was the incubator. And the incubator was kind of a clever idea that was really handled in a half-assed manner. The incubator concept was that for brand, I mean, they were saying that these are for young emerging brands. But in fact, if you visited the incubator, you would have seen several brands that are established and have been around. And what the incubator really was, was um, the lowest price point if you were a brand, if you wanted to display in Basel. And I think there's nothing wrong with calling it what it is. It gave people an opportunity that they might not otherwise be able to afford. But there were some problems with it. Uh, Chief amongst them, there was no incubator going on on press day, which was Wednesday, meaning that they started on Thursday. That was problem number one. But problem number two was that there was virtually no signage um, for the incubator. So this made it incredibly challenging for anybody to know where would I go to see these brands. Um, Several complaints, comments even please from the brand to the fair, please, can you help us? We paid this money. We need, our clients need to find us. And really, if I'm, if I'm honest, I, I didn't get over to the incubator and probably until the second to the last day, or maybe the third, maybe possibly Sunday. I think I got over there and it was, um, it was sort of reminiscent of a Greyhound bus station circa 1973. It was, it was pretty bad. Um, there was no signage. You would not be able to find it unless you were guided very, very carefully. And the brand, I mean, it just was kind of, it was a little depressing. I'm not going to lie. Um, I feel like the brands did their best. They, you know, there were some interesting brands that were there that you never would have seen before. And so that's to be commended. But in fairness, I, I know what they paid. And I think for what they got, they paid over the price. And when I consider the fact that there were huge sections of Hall 1 that were empty, I think for the fair organizers, they would have been wiser to basically lower the prices down to a realistic level and get everybody into the same space. And they could have accommodated that space without having to um, move over into the space that they did. But, you know, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty, and certainly that's very easy for me uh, and others to comment on from a distance but let's just say that it was it was kind of jacked up um when we get kind of back to the whole communication thing i'm going to go back to what my friend rod has said many times and i think it's really true 
you can't email a handshake. And the other thing that was really, I'd say, let's call them chickens coming home to roost for a lot of brands and for their PR agents was a lot of us just basically opted not to set up appointments because, you know, for me, it was actually very simple. If a brand had been non-responsive throughout the year, um, if they were kind of playing it like a Christmas Easter, like in other words, this is the one time of year that I'm actually going to respond to your emails. I'm not going to waste my time going to that appointment. Um, I don't charge brands to cover them. I don't write advertorial. I don't solicit business. When I'm there, I'm there to see what's going on and I'm there to report on it. And my honest feeling is that when I can't even get somebody to respond to a simple email asking for information so I can write an article that will hopefully benefit that brand, I'll be damned if I'm going to spend my time uh, to go out of my way to set up an appointment for them. And now maybe this year was just kind of everything coming to a head for a lot of us. But I know that there were several other outlets that took the same tack. And this led to some very uncomfortable moments. Um, one where I literally got stopped walking in the old town section of Basel on my way to the fair by one PR person sort of again bemoaning the fact that why can't I, you know, the subtext is why am I being a jerk and, you know, further to it, why won't you come and have an appointment? And, you know, me having to say again, very gently, but firmly that, you know, I exist more than one week out of the year. And if you can't respond to an email and get me info so that I can write about you, then this is my most, this is the most expensive time for me for the year. So I have to make it count. And I'm not, you know, it's, it's not an equal relationship. And when you bump my appointment for bigger outlets, when you don't send me information that I ask for, and then suddenly I see a very similar story in another bigger outlet that you pay advertising fees to, it basically tells me that you don't value the relationship. And ultimately, you know, what watches, writing about watches, communicating about them, and despite what a lot of the folks suffering from severe cases of millennialitis will tell you, it's still a people business and it's still a relationship business. And relationships aren't automatic. They have to be equal on both sides. They require nurturing and care. And I know this sounds very cheesy, but let's just be honest, that's kind of the way it is. So a lot of brands didn't get the coverage that they were, I think, just expecting. And I want to be very clear again, this wasn't just me. Uh, and it certainly wasn't anything that we all got together on and made a secret pact that we're going to, you know, we're going to boycott certain brands. But, you know, curious to relate that a lot of the same brands um, got no shows or no appointments from various people and I think really that that was just their way of saying enough is enough and you need to do better by us. So I want to kind of throw out, I, I wrote about this in the blog, but I'm, I'm just going to kind of highlight this again and uh, some of this is a little bit regurgitation and you know before I get to that. Um... Okay so we're back, let's talk about 2020 and obviously well, maybe not obviously if you don't follow these sorts of things, but for many of us, obviously the big topic is that uh, Basel World is going to follow closely on the heels of the SIHH show. So in fact, um, SIHH is going to run in late April, if I understand it correctly, and that Basel World then is going to be running more or less the first week of May. Um, this is kind of wrongheaded on a lot of levels. Um, I appreciate the anxiety and the fear of the fair organizers that the belief is that if they unite 
with SIHH and if for the journalists and the retailers that they're going from one show to the other, this is a lot more compact. I got some news for you. The reality is no. Uh, it is requiring a lot of more extent, a lot more extended travel time, a lot more expense uh, for people to try and cover both within a smaller period of time. Overall, I just don't think it's a good solution. And that's just me. But then let's um, ask ourselves, what do you think the folks uh, from the Middle East are going to think about this? Why, Hanky? Why are you asking this question? Well, Ramadan, you know, that it's kind of an important holiday. <laughs> and it is going to be taking place over the course of both the SAHH and Basel World. So uh, A plus for really crap planning, guys, because that was a no brainer. And that's something that really the planners should have been aware of. They should have been taking into account. Um, it shows, to my way of thinking, a fundamental lack of disrespect for a huge group of people who are very passionate about watches and jewelry, uh, who are huge contributors on every level, be it reporting, be it retailing, be it distribution. This, um, I have to be honest, this just is kind of brainless and witless, and I don't know why the scheduling was done this way. I sincerely hope it's not going to adversely affect the show. I desperately hope that uh, people um, who observe and celebrate Ramadan will still come and participate in the fairs. And I, I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to say this uh, insensitively that I know that everybody worships in their own way. And for some people, this might not be an issue. But I do think that, you know, we certainly wouldn't schedule Basel World or SIHH right in the middle of Christmas or Easter. So let's show the same amount of respect, care and consideration for everybody. The format that was originally there seemed to cover all the bases. And I just think that this is kind of a, again, kind of a, a poorly thought out decision making paradigm. But moving beyond that, let's talk about what this really means for business uh, in addition to the scheduling gaffe. And that is the lateness of the show. Now, for those of you not familiar, typically this is how it works. A retailer is going to spend most of January, um, hopefully, reveling in the thrilling success that was the holiday shopping period that they closed out the year in good shape, but that they still have, you know, some stuff they have to move. They've got to blow out the watches. They need to blow out um, jewelry. Ideally, they don't want to be replenishing orders really probably until March. Well, and that's when they would go to Basel World and that's when they'd see what was available. They'd be meeting the brand owners and their uh, brand agents face to face it makes sense and that's when you would plan for the rest of the year and if you're if you're a regional jeweler um, or watch store owner you would then if you're not going to go to Basel you would certainly go in America you go to JCK or you go to whatever whatever show is equivalent in your country and you would depend on your you would depend on your representative or your sales manager to kind of brief you on what's what's coming up so Really, when we're talking about anything happening this late, half the year is over. Half the selling year is over. And in fact, traditionally, most of the buying decisions have already been made at this point. So it kind of begs the question of what is the point? When you're scheduling it this late, and in addition to 
the disregard for um, important holidays on the calendar that are going to impact folks and their ability to come to the shows. I, I just don't think that there was a lot of clear-headed thinking going into this. And I think, I mean, I'm sorry, but I think this is sort of the arrogance that some of us have come to expect, certainly from the SIHH, uh, but also more and more from Basel World, that the show is so important that you're going to do whatever it takes. And what they're discovering, whether they're going to admit it or not, is that this attitude has kind of got their butts in the ringer um, the last several years with attendance is going down. My understanding is that the report is that attendance was down 22%. And that maybe that's the case, but I'm going to tell you from someone who was actually wandering the halls every single day, if that was only a 22% drop, I would hate to see what the actual drop was because it really looked more like 50% or greater. It was really underpopulated. There were not a lot of people there. Big booths and big brands, certainly, they're going to still do business. So Rolex and Breitling and you know LVMH, that being Zenith, well, it's hard to say about Zenith, but certainly that being Tag Heuer and Hublot, yes, they were busy and they always will be. But when you get to the mid-tier brands that were up in Hall 1.1, um, they're a very different story. And so it's easy to... It's easy to slough it off and say, oh, well, you know, only down 22%. In fact, I mean, I, I do think the number was a deeper drop than that. But more importantly, I think part of it is what you can actually see. When when I can roam the halls pretty much um, unhindered by traffic, that's not a good sign. That's a sign to me that there aren't enough people there. Now, the funny thing is on Monday, everybody's like, oh, wow, you know, crowds are up, crowds are up. And I had to remind people that Monday is traditionally the day that the watchmaking schools take that day off and they bring their classes and their students. And sure enough, that was because they're like, yeah, it's amazing. Like these big groups of people coming all at once. Like, yeah, they're students and that's their teacher. You sort of notice that they all, you know, none of them really look like buyers, <laughs> that they might look a little a little bit more like either enthusiasts or people who um, are not necessarily running stores to come in and make their orders for merchandise. Now, I think it's wonderful that the students are there. Um, I love that time because you get to have some very interesting conversations from the new breed. And part of what I'm, I'm coming to grips with, let's say, because I am now having to accept the fact that I'm part of the older, if not the old guard. I'm as you say, I'm part of the problem, not necessarily part of the solution. And what was, you know, what was very clear to me, and this harkens back to the whole communication thing, that also harkens back to the, you actually have to be findable in the hall. Um, this is, you know, this is a time where we have to, as a group, accept the fact that, you know, things are changing, but communication is still communication and we as a group need to be communicated to better and more importantly i think of the new people coming through it's crucial uh that we get a hold of those people coming to report to cover because some of us i mean we already know what a great fair this is we know how awesome watches are we don't need to be convinced but these new folks they absolutely do and we as a collective, you know, need to embrace them. Um, we need to make sure that they have everything that they need um, and that they're communicated to on a level that is going to encourage them to not only keep coming back, but to 
to give coverage to the brands that need it. And until there's, I think, a collective change of thought and a, I guess, kind of a come to Jesus moment where the brands are going to stop acting like God on the throne and actually try to engage a little bit more. And that also reflects back to the Ferrer's organization that until those things happen, it's going to be harder and harder to get new blood into the fair to cover it. And it's that coverage that's going to stimulate more interest in the fair globally. So that's okay. That's me on my soapbox and now I'm off it. But let's get over to what I kind of paraphrased um, previously and what I'm going to break down again, not to be redundant, but just to make it clear. And these are, these are what I'm calling my pro tips for a better fair in 2020. Now, it's easy that we can look at Swatch Group not coming to the fair and seeing that that's the cause of all our woes. And that would just be bullshit. A lot of other brands bailed out. Um, you could say that Swatch taking a pass spiked the fair, but it didn't. There were plenty of other opportunities that were there, but I don't think that the fair organization really understood what possibilities there were to do better. And I also think that a lot of brands kind of half-assed it and phoned it in. So here are my pro tips. Now, number one is that you need to be findable. So quite simply, if I'm honest, the fair this year was laid out with all the precision of a drunken cow wandering the halls with a GPS device. I'm sorry, but I'm calling this one like I, and frankly, a lot of other people see it. The big brands were fine. But let's be honest, that was a particularly small number, uh, certainly smaller than previous years. Several of the mid-level brands, you would have required a compass and a Michelin roadmap to find them. And God help you if you're trying to find a brand in the misplaced and ill-conceived incubator, because not even GPS and uh, a Sherpa were going to get you there. It was really hard to find, and it was not a welcoming environment once you were there. So this is kind of a nutty idea, but put up some signage. Something subtle like this way to the incubator with an arrow. You know, like the signs that were used throughout Hall 1 to direct people to Le Atelier and to the other sections. And those signs were out there. So I, I find it fascinating that the effort could be made, but it was certainly not a universal effort. Number two, we're going to say it one more time. You can't email a handshake. And so... It's great that we're embracing technology and that we want to automate it. And I know that Constant Contact and other um, blast providers are great because not only do you send it out, but you can see who received it, you can see who opened it. But none of that really matters if there's not a human being on the other fucking end of the email communication to close the circle. And invariably, that's what kept not happening. So, um, this then brings me into the next point. And yes, it's going to sound um, English-centric and it's not meant to, but English is just you know my point of reference. But for any large company, I'm not talking about a small mom-and-pop, you know, three-person operation or uh, the tiniest of micro-brands. I mean, but I'm talking about a mid-level brand. If you're claiming that your staff are fluent in English, and if you're charging usurious rates based on this, and you are the PR slash communication firm, excuse me while I die laughing, then it would be reasonable to assume that your staff are fluent in the languages that you claim. Unfortunately, this is all too frequently not the case. Now, I get it, because truthfully, 
you know, who's going to know otherwise? Because guess what? You're all, all of these firms are owned uh, either in Switzerland or Germany. So we don't have any native speakers running these companies. How would they know? They would certainly know a native German speaker. They would know a native French speaker. There's no real way that they can know if a person is truly a native English speaker. Um, so kind word of advice, either send these folks to a Berlitz cram course before the fair starts so that they're ready. Or, and I know that this is an absolutely nutty, goofy, insane idea because it not only makes sense, but it's cost effective. You could hire on a on an ad hoc basis a native speaker who's fluent in each of the target languages that you're trying to communicate in and have them proofread and edit your press releases before they get sent out. It is remarkably simple to do. There are a ton of people out there who will do it. And guess what? It's really affordable. It's going to cost you less than what you're going to spend on lunch for like three of your staff members during the fair. Adding to that, the, the eternal question, what's in a name? Well, in fairness, I have been called a lot of different names in the Hall of Basel world, some even close to my given name. But when I get an email that starts dear blank space blank, I tend to look for a message from a former most excellent foreign prime minister of country X who wants to entrust me with his fortune. Automation is great, but what happened this year was an endless cycle of broken communication that I found you couldn't even unsubscribe from. I tried unsubscribing from it after the 10th message and found myself back in the loop with the same circle of broken messages again. And you could, it'd be nice to say that it's dysfunctional and particularly the book your appointment now function uh, was dysfunctional, but I don't know that that's really fair to to the term of dysfunctional <laughs> because dysfunctional would lead you to believe that although things weren't perfect, they ended up working out in the end. And to be very honest with you, these automated schedules, schedule makers and schedule setting functions within the message were about as useful as a bandaid on a gunshot wound. I was kind of shocked by just how bad it was and to the point where literally I was unsubscribing from a list and then getting 10 minutes later exactly the same message from the same outlet. It's crazy, it's frustrating, and it was just sort of underscoring, I think, the the lack of preparation that a lot of these companies put in. And in addition, if you're a PR firm or if you work PR for a company, just like the junior prom, you might not want to wait until the week before Baselworld to send out your invitations for appointments. Okay, but now let's get back over to the fair organizers themselves. Live in the real world. You've got to charge a reasonable amount for what you're offering. It's pretty simple math. You can either have a lot of empty space because you don't have enough brands who either can't or won't pay for it, or you could do something crazy and you could punch your weight and you could charge a realistic rate and you could have full hauls. I mean, it's it's a tough thing to accept, but there were probably as many brands displaying off campus than in the main sections of Hall 1 this year. Okay, now I kind of want to close this again with a rejoinder that I think all things being equal, the people who took up the mantle for fair management this year, and this was like the second group through because the first guy in the first fish in the barrel basically bailed out and said, I can't do this or I won't do this or whatever, whatever it was. Um, it left the fair in a big state of flux. I think it's never easy to, to jump into a boat that's heading for a waterfall. 
and be willing to take the wheel and try to steer it to safety. And overall, and I want to say big picture overall, you know, the fare came off. It was not nearly as good as it could be. It has a shit ton of room for improvement, but it could have been worse. And I, I kind of want to close this by making one thing really, really clear. Despite the impression that people might get from reading the blog, despite the fact that I'm not always flattering, uh, because frankly, I don't feel like that's my place in this whole exchange. <clears throat> All of that aside, I love Basel World. Basel World for me is Christmas, Easter, the 4th of July, and the Super Bowl all rolled into one. I look forward to it every year and I enjoy every moment of it, even when I'm not enjoying it. So let's, you know, let's hold a good thought for 2020. Let's hope that we can improve on it. Let's hope that it is going to finally deliver on what everybody's saying. And until then, Tempest Fujit.